if you want to close out this year strong and start next year even stronger, then you may want to check out the Same Side Selling Academy six-week immersion program starting on October 10th. It's going to be limited to a small number of people, and it's hopefully a group that's going to be highly engaged, focused on same-side selling and how to grow your business. Just go to samesidesellingacademy.com to sign up. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Kelly. Now, Mary, in addition to being a speaker and an author, is a former commander and Navy intelligence officer and a coffee addict. And she'll take us on a journey where she takes military strategy and applies it to deliver a competitive edge for organizations. We're going to talk about the biggest mistakes that people make in leadership when it comes to changes and stress that go on in your business. It may be stress related to political, economic, social, any of those sorts of of factors. We'll talk about millennials and how we need to groom them for leadership and the leadership skills that are going to be needed 10 or 20 years from now that may not be obvious today. You're going to learn a ton from Dr. Barry Kelly, who, by the way, also happens to be a PhD economist. Here's Mary. Mary Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you. So before we dive in to everything in the world we want to know about leadership in changing environments, tell us something that the audience may not know about you. That during my time in the military, I was actually a military chief of police. Really? Yes. I think any job that gives you all the guns and handcuffs you want is a good job. (laughs) So what did you learn from that? So in that environment, first off, you do get accustomed to working, again, in a multicultural, very diverse environment. And my police force had civilians, contractors, military active duty people, and we ranged in age from 18 to 74 years old. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you learn to deal with all kinds of issues, respond quickly, think calmly, and then you try to impart that to your team. As you and I both know, many leadership decisions kind of go wrong when people allow too much emotion into the equation. That's certainly the case. And uh, I know there are many times in in the past, and I'm probably more level-headed now, where you know, first I wanted to scream and then I would think about what I wanted to do. And uh, over time, I, I think I just cut out one of the important steps, which is now I don't think I just scream. So, Well, one of the best things I learned in that job as, as a chief of police was, again, how important our perception, our persona is for people trusting us to be that calm voice of reason, especially in situation when you're walking into an emotional confrontation or some kind of conflict. And I remember in, after about 90 days in the job, I went into my boss and I said, you know, I want to make sure I'm doing a great job for you. By the way, that is the best line ever to use on your boss, your spouse. Honey, I want to do a great job for you as, as a man. I want to do a great job for you, baby, as your partner, whatever. It's a great line. And I went into my boss and I said this, I said, I want to do a great job for you. Am I bringing the characteristics to this job that you want? And I gave him the characteristics that I thought I was bringing to the job. And he came back and he looked at me and he said, that's not what I want from you. (laughs) And I thought, oh my gosh, no, 90 days, I've been going the wrong direction. He said, when, when you and my police force show up, I want people to say the good guys are here. I want people to realize that they can trust you. They can trust their kids with you, that you are going to respond with kindness, with the right decision, and make sure that that they understand you are truly here to help. 
And I have to tell you, Ian, that shifted everything from how my department went forward. You know, it's, it's an interesting lesson. There's a, I, I, I served a period of time, not in something as noble as, as you have, but as president of a country club. And we, we had a bunch of knucklehead members who would always be kind of the troublemakers. And so it just always got to be the point where it's like, man, these guys are always an issue. And they would get suspended and fined and all this stuff. And we hired a new general manager who ended up years later being recognized as the club manager of the year in the United States. Um, really capable guy named Eric Dietz. And Eric, these guys were acting up and you know being hellraisers and disrupting other people. And we said, yeah, well, maybe we should find him. Maybe we should do this and that. And Eric said, let me handle this. We're like, okay, man, what's he going to do? Because he, he, was, he was kind of a serious-looking guy. Uh-huh. And Eric, Eric walks over to the, the, the lead hooligan, puts his arm around him, and says, hey, can you help me out with something? That's right. And he says, can you help me out with something? See, when this stuff happens, it looks like I'm not doing my job. And then the board wigs out, and then nothing good happens. So what can you and I do together to curtail this? And the guy looks at him and goes, you know, Eric, don't worry about it, man. I'll take care of our guys and it'll never happen again. And it never did. And it was like, right. like, you know, we tried to punish, we tried to do all this stuff that was totally ineffective. And it wasn't until someone was like, Oh, look, Oh, I know be human. What a great idea. Why didn't we think of that? But Ian, it's also what you talk about in, in your programs on same sign selling, you know, we're all on the same side. And if you can get people on your side Instead of being confrontational, they can actually be some of your closest allies. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 a magical thing. So the the big thing I want to tap in your expertise here is a lot of a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders struggle when there are changes socially, politically, economically, um, different business climates, demographic changes, and and candidly, when those things happen. A lot of people don't handle it well. So in those uncertain times when things are changing, what are the biggest mistakes that you see people make that kind of get them into a trap? So probably the biggest mistake, Ian, is what I call the head in the sand. You've seen this. You've seen ostriches put their head in the sand. That many people say, oh, gosh, I'm just waiting for things to get back to normal. The reality is it's never going to be the same as it was even yesterday. And that things are changing very quickly. And to ignore the change, you ignore it at your peril and at the at the disservice to your organization. So that's the number one thing I think people struggle with is sort of longing for a time when there wasn't so much change, when change happened slowly, that you know you knew what to do as a seasoned leader every single day, that you didn't have to keep relearning or learning new things and new skills every single day. So, so it's almost it's almost the notion of, well, all this stuff's going on, but if I close my eyes and wish, then when I open my eyes, everything will be back to the way I wanted it to be before. Yes. And many people also have this idea that the way it was before, we romanticize it. We're like, oh, it was easier back then. Well, <laughs> it probably wasn't easier. It was just different. And yes, it was an easier environment because you were comfortable in that environment. So for example, one of the examples... I give people is if you learn to drive on the right-hand side of the road, let's say in the United States, and then you travel to Scotland where you're going to drive on the left side of the road and you see a car coming at you, maybe that car is weaving side to side and they're in a crisis situation, your natural response 
is to turn to the right because that's how you were raised. Yep. But instead, yep. you're, the response you need to have is to go left. And so the problem is, is how we first learned how to do many of the things that got us to the position we're in are not exactly the right responses now. Yeah, well, you know what? And I love that because it's that it's something that I also talk about is anytime somebody's learning something new, the first thing they have to do is unlearn what they had learned. And they have to unlearn their old habit often if they want to be successful with whatever they're doing now. And it's the same sort of thing. I also think that, and I'm curious your thought on this. One of the traps I think people fall into is they react like they're a victim, like they are powerless. So um, oftentimes I'll get CEOs, heads of sales who say, well, you know, the, the economy is really not doing well. So, you know, we're, we're not doing well in our business. There's nothing I can do about it. And I often say, okay, well, in that case, just why don't you go home? And when things turn around, we'll call you. <laughs> I love that. That's hilarious. Because it's like, look, life doesn't work that way. You know, so what you have to say is, okay, this has happened. How do I deal with it now? And I think I think that there's got to be an important lesson there because I remember um, I remember post 9-11 in my prior business, right after 9-11, before 9-11, we were convinced that we had a highly diversified business. Because we had clients who were insurance companies, financial services companies, banks, I mean, all those different industries. And after 9-11 happened, we realized, wait a minute, that's all one industry. And it all just stopped overnight. And so we had a hiccup in our business. And people said, oh, well, there's nothing you can do about it. And I said, actually, going forward, I will always be cognizant of the inter interconnectivity between any clients that we're dealing with because we thought we were diversified. We weren't. And people said, oh, but there's nothing you could have done about it. And I said, well, I think anytime something happens, we have to have a lesson. There has to be something we learn from it and how we can deal with it differently going forward. Otherwise, it's just, well, something else is going to happen and there's nothing I can do about that either. And I don't think you can lead from that position. I completely agree that many times when things don't go, don't go the way we like them to go, People do tend to have sort of this victim mentality that I can't do anything about it. Oh, there's nothing we can do. But that's not what leadership is. Leadership is taking the action people need in order to move forward in the right direction at that time, especially when things are not easy. I'm fond of saying, you know, in a in an easy situation, you know, you can you can have anybody sitting in the top job. Um in a not very politically correct way, you know, you can have a drunk stuffed animal sitting in the CEO chair if every single person in their job is doing their job perfectly well and nobody needs to make any hard decisions. But that's not why you're there. The point of leadership is to be that be that person in charge who can make the right decisions, especially when times are tough. So this idea that, oh, there's nothing I can do, I reject that as that winds up to me not being a reason. It's just an excuse for not doing your job. So you can't have that head in your sand waiting for it to return to when things were better and easier and the flowers were in bloom and life was great. And you can't be a victim. So what? how should people think differently when there are these changing environments? And let's face it, there's a bunch of topics. I mean, we, we want to talk about the millennials and, and the way people perceive millennials and recognizing that guess what? In many cases, they're already starting to move into leadership roles, but yes. how should people view the world differently to help them be more successful? 
One of the techniques I try to encourage people to think about is try to imagine the world through the eyes of your 23-year-old friend or your 23-year-old employee or your 78-year-old friend or your 78-year-old employee. Try to see how they're seeing things through their perspective. Really put yourself in their shoes. We talk about that, but people truly don't get into other people's heads. So if you're a millennial, for example, you know, you're looking at people who are resisting change, who don't like technology, who move slowly, who are mired in this bureaucratic nightmare of paperwork, and you don't understand why. You don't understand when somebody says, yeah, I'm going to fax that to you. They're, they give you a blank stare. They're like, what are you talking about? Why in the world would you – what? Who has a fax Wait, machine? Can you fax it to my pager? <laughs> yeah, can you? Yeah, exactly. And they're and they're thinking, no, send it to my phone. I'll docu sign it, or I'll sign electronically, and I'll get it back to you in five seconds. And then the and then the baby boomers are looking at this, going, oh, they're impatient, and they don't want to work as hard, and yeah, they won't make that extra effort. Where a lot of times, what they're seeing is that the millennials have been raised to be independent, problem solvers, creative, and they embrace technology. Mostly because we, their parents, raised them to be that way. We gave them great education when we could, great confidence to explore new opportunities. We gave them the self-esteem that allows them to change jobs in search of new opportunities, new causes, new ways to try to save the world. We instilled all of this in them. And then yet, as their employer, we get frustrated with them when those very traits we tried to teach them are coming back to bite us. And part of that is we need to embrace the world from their perspective and we need to grow them as the leaders who will be in charge of our organizations in 20 years. And I think that's hard for us, but keep in mind, as you've mentioned, the generation before us, I'm sure was frustrated with us too. And we need to also recognize that there are more seniors working in the United States now, whether part-time or full-time, than we've had before. And we need to not forget them. We need to make sure that we are tapping into their strengths, their wisdom, their perspective, and really make sure we are serving all of our best employees, regardless of their demographic, the best way possible. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love this idea of view, view it through their eyes or view it through the eyes of others because I think people often say, well, these millennials, here's what they want. And oftentimes I'll explain to businesses where let's say they're, they're hiring millennials in their sales organization and they're using some arcane CRM tool. Mm -hmm. And they say, yeah, so after you make a phone call, then you have to enter this stuff and log it in. And the millennial says, well, can't you just make it so when I make a phone call, receive a phone call, it just does a lookup and pulls this automatically and enters the data? Well, we could, but we'd have to invest in that. And this employee is looking like, I don't want to work at this place because you're creating stupid work for me when my smartphone or some of their technology could do it for me. So it's not that they're lazy. They're just unwilling to do stuff that they know can be automated better than they can do it manually. I think our millennials see efficiencies vastly better than the generations before them. And that's exactly what you're talking about. They see efficiencies and they also see the possibilities of, okay, well, maybe that technology hasn't been invented yet, but what if? And that's what I love about them. Yeah. And what about in changing political times, economic times, what should people be looking at in terms of communication, in terms of the information they need to have, the decisions they're making? How should they act differently in those environments? Such a great point. This past year, we've seen a lot of political rhetoric go back and forth with high levels of emotion. 
And really, as a leader, part of your job is to move your organization and your people forward with calm, steady vision, goals, mission, keep the end in mind. And with all of these changing things, politics, economics, social aspects, people feel a sense of disruption. And when they come to work for you or your organization, they should feel like, wow, I know where to park my car. There's, a, I park my car under this tree. I go here. I know what's expected of me. I know what my boss wants. And so we have to provide these types of reassurances. And what does that look like? What it looks like is it means that we have to make sure all of our employees have the right job description, really fleshed out, really talked out among you and your people so that they know what the expectations are, that they know that when there's this disruption in the world around them, that they come to work and they are valued as employees who are hired for reasons and they're appreciated for doing that job. You become the sense of stability in a very uncertain world. So that's one aspect of it. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Keep going. Mm-hmm. And so the other part of that is making sure your people are getting the communication from you they need. You know, the book that uh, I co-authored with Peter Stark a year ago, The Why Leaders Fail and the Seven Prescriptions for Success, the top prescription for success for every single major category that employees are unhappy about regarding their employers has to do with communication. Either they're not getting enough complete information in a timely manner, and that's complete in a timely manner, and that's hard to do when they've got Twitter feeds, when they've got, you know, other ways to get information about their organization and the industry other than from you. You've still got to be the voice of authority and the voice of information that they can trust. And so many leaders get frustrated with this. They say, well, I send out emails, you know, once a week. That's not often enough to keep people informed in a way that is meaningful for them. On the other side, I see large organizations who say who put a lot of time and effort into making this beautiful newsletter that's 25 pages long. And that's just silly. Nobody's re- And then they attach it as an attachment, and nobody, of course, opens it. People need to know what they need to know now. Don't make it hard for people to find the right information. So that's kind of point number two. And then point number three is in a changing environment, understanding how people react to change is huge. There's something called the J-curve of change. So let's say you want to implement a new software system. People are going to roll their eyes and go, really? Again? We're doing this again? Didn't we just do this 17 years ago? It's a new software system. And they roll their (laughs) eyes and they push back. And you've seen this. And it can be any kind of change. We're going to change our headquarters. Really? That's the stupidest idea ever. Uh, We've decided we're going to wear purple on Fridays. That's the stupidest idea ever. So people don't like change. And there's always going to be people who react with a sense of denial. Are you kidding? That's stupid. We can't do that. Uh, We don't have the time, people, resources, money all of the reasons why we shouldn't do it. And then people start to get into this idea of, of, well, if we do this, then what does it look like? And then they start to explore this idea of, gosh, maybe it is a good idea for us to move headquarters into a different state where we're going to have lower taxes and I can um, have more house for my, my dollars and pay, you know, uh, pay more for um, a school system or get more from a school system than I'm paying or whatever the, the pluses are from the change. As people start to get more used to the change, they start to explore it in the what's in it for me category. And that's what happens before commitment. But in that process of the denial and the resistance, you have an emotional response. And this is a lot of what we see in the news that people 
realize they have to live with a certain decision and they just don't want to. And so they push back. And in reality, we're extremely adaptable as humans. We wouldn't have been able to survive this long if we weren't. We are adaptable once we realize we need to change. We actually are pretty good at it once we get to that exploration and commitment phase. Yeah. And and so that, that whole notion of initially, you know, anytime change comes in, well, I don't need to change what I have. What I have is fine and, and they better not change it. And then it's you move to, well, maybe I'm open to the idea of it, but I'm still not bought in. And then it's, you know, maybe this wouldn't be so bad for me. And all that happens before people are going to buy into it. Mm-hmm. It's exactly right. And change for most people is hard because those habits that you were talking about before, those are things that were comfortable for us. We know what works. We can go from point A to point B. Most of us take the exact route to work every single day because that's the exact route we should be taking every single day. Our habits make us successful and keep us alive, but we also have to change those habits when the environment changes. So let me ask you this. If I look at the millennials today moving into leadership roles and I say, look, over the next 10 to 20 years, these people are going to be solidly running businesses, organizations, governmental agencies um, in positions of authority. What are the skills that they need and how are they different from the skills that, you know, yesterday's leaders had? Such a great question, Ian. Thank you for that. So first, our millennials, again, because we instilled this in them, are less committed to organizations until they feel the organization is committed to them. They respond very well to mentorship programs, to coaching programs. They like to be able to ask a lot of questions. And what a lot of, I think, the older generations don't realize is how much our millennials, those people born after 1984, are listening They really are listening. They want to know. They seek knowledge like crazy because they can get facts off their phone. But what they want is wisdom and knowledge. So this idea that we're setting them up for leadership, we have to set them up for success. And sometimes people who are the employers say, but gosh, if my employee and most millennials change jobs quicker than other demographics, it's about uh, 2.6 years is the average they stay at an organization. The employers say, well, why should I invest in these people when they're just going to leave me? And this is a tough sell, and it's a tough idea to wrap your head around when you don't want to spend resources on people who are not going to be committed to you. That's all, you know, that's always my, my favorite quote is in response to, what if I train them and they leave? Well, what if you don't and they stay? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's perfect. That's exactly right. You know, in the military, our job is to train our people for their next job working for someone else. And in fact, if one of my people goes to work for someone else and they're not well trained and they're not ready for that next level of responsibility, I can expect a phone call. Hey, Mary, what did you do? What did you, what's going on over there? Why is this person not ready for that next level of responsibility? And that I think is the mindset we have to have is we've really got to look at getting not just the people who are going to be with us long term, but even people who are with us in terms of training to get them trained up in the best possible way to accept more responsibility, even if it's not with us. Yeah, I love it. So if I know that I've got to commit to these people before they're mm-hmm. going to commit, if I know that my option is not to not train them, mm-hmm. because if I do that, it's not going to work. What sort of skills do those people need? going forward that's going to help them thrive. And it might be some skills that we don't think of today. Mm -hmm. So I think this is 
such a great question because our millennials are going to need a different skill set than we had in some areas, but they're still going to need the basic premise of how to motivate the people around you to work collaboratively together on a project, on an idea to get some kind of product, good or service from inception to market. They've still got to learn to work well as teams and our millennials do have a pretty good basis for that because our school system has adjusted to working with teams. But the problem with working with teams is not everybody gets heard. And as a leader, we have to make sure that everyone on the team has a voice. And by having a voice, I'm not just talking about speaking up, but they truly feel like they need to be on the team. They're a valuable part of the team and their inputs are valued as well. And that there's a freedom to express, hey, I know we talked about this last week. However, I'd like to add this. And this has to be such an inclusive team that people are excited about getting together with their teams, that they feel that the people they work with are great instead of just, oh, I have to work on a team. Many of us learned about teamwork um, in school from those dreaded group projects. And in the dreaded group project in school, you learned you were going to have to do all the work if you wanted any decent grade, that everyone else was clearly sabotaging you, and it was miserable. By the way, I think for those of us with either advanced degrees who have reached a certain place in life, that's our recollection. Mm -hmm. There's also people who were in those groups with us in school we were like, dude, I remember group projects. That was awesome. Because what was that woman's <laughs> name? Mary? Yeah, that girl? Yeah. She did all the work. And dude, we barely even showed up. <laughs> so the reason that's so funny is, you know, when I went to the Naval Academy, we had to build rockets. Uh, and I, you know, most back then, a lot of especially guys had built rockets and my brother built them, but it just wasn't something I did back then. And so I, I'm having to build a rocket. One of the guys was like, you've never built a rocket before and we have to do it as a project. I said, no, I've never built a rocket before. He goes, oh, it's really fun. And, and the thought that, oh, wow, this could actually be fun hadn't crossed my mind before that. I was just taking it as a homework assignment. So sometimes we've got to look at the projects and say, you know, this is really fun for some people. And we've got to look at it from that perspective. So the other thing that I think our millennials will need when they move into leadership positions is this idea of holding other people accountable. And this is some a place where I think they're really going to struggle. And here's why. They kind of grew up with the everybody gets a trophy mentality and that if you participate, it's good enough. But when you're accountable for actual results, that participation trophy doesn't work. And this is the area I think they're going to struggle in because they're going to say, oh, that's okay. You tried. By the way, I, I want to comment on this because in, in working with a lot of different businesses and their sales organizations, I'm seeing more and more people in that, in that millennial age category in sales leadership roles. And what I've noticed recently is they'll say, yeah, so, you know, Chris on my team just, you know, really isn't, isn't hitting their numbers and, you know, isn't really getting the results, but man, I mean, can you talk to them? And I said, well, so why, why would I talk to them? I mean, isn't this your direct report? Yeah. But I mean, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep them, but, but I, I do feel like they're trying. And so, you know, maybe it's okay. And I said, okay, so, so do you have, is your sales goal something that you're trying to attain or is it something that the board expects you to reach? Well, I mean, they expect us to reach it, but I mean, what can they say if we're trying? And I said, well, what they could say is, hey, you're fired because you didn't achieve the goal. And it's like, and they look at me like, 
well, what do you mean? I'm trying. And I think that's funny. But I think you're, and you're absolutely right. There's also reluctance for leaders and managers today to correct their employees. And again, like my job with my boss, when I was a chief of police, I thought I was doing everything great. And he corrected me in the nicest possible way. And he told me the because he got, he said, I understand that you're trying, but that's not what I want from you. I'm like, oh, okay. I need to completely readjust. And what we're finding is this reluctance to stop people from wasting time. So effort is great, but effort in the right direction is better. So let me ask you this. Like when we look at the economy, one of my philosophies is this, and I'm curious as someone with their PhD in economics, how far off base I am. I have often said to people, look, when you complain about the economy is doing X, Y, and Z, recognize that the economy to a certain degree, doesn't exist, meaning the economy is really just an aggregation of all of the individual elements building into it. So if your business starts doing well and you start hiring more people and buying more products and services, then other businesses in turn grow and it all kind of feeds off of each other. And I often believe that the greatest factor in economic growth or slowdown is just confidence. If people feel like things are going the right direction, it all feeds off each other. If they, and if people start getting cautious, it all goes the other direction. But that's me without a PhD in economics. So how far half-baked is that? You are 100% right, Ian, as with so many things. Uh, economics is largely anecdotal. Do you have a job? Do your friends have a job? Are your kids getting jobs? Do people you know have issues trying to keep their home, lose their home. During the recession, you know, when we had 28% of people underwater on their mortgages with their home, there was this sense of, oh gosh, I'm doing really badly. Oh, but I've got good company because everybody else is too. That second part didn't really kick in. It's just my mortgage is $350,000, but my home is only worth $330,000. And now I'm very, very scared. Well, wait a second. You bought that home for $400,000. You liked it at $400,000. The fact that your neighbor's home is now selling for three thirty dollars really shouldn't impact the fact that you love your bathroom. So people get wigged out about comparing themselves to other people. And again, it's largely anecdotal. If you're out of a job and you haven't been able to get a job for six months, you think the economy is terrible. You don't care about the fact that our unemployment numbers at 4.3% are the lowest they've been in years. You don't really care that the quarterly expectations that just came out show that we are poised for 2.6% growth heading toward three and a half for the year when only one and a half was projected. You don't care about any of that. All you care about is your bills are on your kitchen table and you're sweating about how to pay them. So because then all of a sudden you do get into that scarcity mindset of, oh, I got to cut back. I can't do this. I can't do that. And when that spreads throughout a neighborhood or an industry, then all of a sudden we do see the scarcity mindset kick in. When people feel confident about the economy, they feel confident about the industry and the organization they work for, and they feel confident about the skill sets that they have for the future, then the economy tends to carry along with it. Well, so that sounded way smarter than my comment about well, it's confidence, isn't it? And it just occurs to me right now, that's the difference in the PhD. So you actually have logic, reason, and and data behind it. And mine was just a gut feel that said, yeah, I think it kind of works like this, which is good enough for me. 
And, and that is, that's exactly it though. It's good enough for most people. And that's why most people, you know, they think about talking to an economist and they think, oh my gosh, I'd rather have a root canal. And I completely understand that because they, you know, you're, you're talking about your retirement and your job and your family. And really that's where most individuals should be. But then you carry that into your organization and your industry as an industry leader. And you say, okay, my son isn't able to get a job with a chemical engineering degree. However, I need to put that aside and make good decisions based on the industry I work in, which has nothing to do with chemical engineering. But unfortunately, you get this scarcity mindset in one aspect of your life, and it does carry over into the decisions that you make for the future in your organization. If all of your friends are talking about how they're so worried about their retirement, you may walk into your own retirement thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. It creates doubt. And that's, part of it. and that's part of the issue where we need real leadership to combat that doubt with, with facts and good decisions. It's interesting. You know, one of the things that – one of the things I also think about is with changes politically, I've seen a number of CEOs or leaders who whatever their viewpoint is, if they have an employee who has a different, maybe opposite political viewpoint – I see an interesting dynamic, which is this, which is the leader tries to explain to the other person, in essence, why the leader's view of this is right and the other person's view of this is wrong. Instead mm-hmm. of, look, I understand why you feel that way. And from my perspective, I believe I, I feel this other way. And we can still get along, even though we have slightly different views on this point, and neither one of us is probably going to come around to the other one's viewpoint, which candidly is, I think, part of the problem of gridlock right now in our world is that, in my mind, we have a country that was predicated on people finding compromise and getting less than what they really want, but finding an area of compromise and getting things done, and we've moved to a system of um, of being entirely ineffective where it's like, well, if I can't have everything I want, then you can't have anything you want. Yes. And it is. It's easy to preach to the choir. When you know you're going to get an audience that loves everything you say, it's easy to talk to them. And in fact, in the hiring process, it's easy for likes to hire likes. It's easy for you to hire somebody who's like you. But the reality is in business, if everybody is thinking exactly the same way in your organization, you're not innovating more, very well. You're not being creative. You don't have that other perspective that you desperately need to go forward. And we've seen this in the political arena as well, that if you don't agree with me political, then politically, then we can't be friends. Well, wait a second. You know, my whole point in being in the military, I may not agree what you what you say, but I will defend your right to yeah. say it. And that's our democracy. And that's what it's supposed to be about, is that we are a nation of people who you know what? I may I may disagree with everything you say with every fiber of my body, but by gosh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna defend your right to yep. say it. And more people need to be more tolerant and more accepting of divergent opinions. And you know, certainly we see ridiculous displays of of non acceptance. And you can disagree all you want, but just be grown ups, respect each other. And the same thing in the workplace. There's no reason for there to be disrespectful conversations in the workplace about politics or economics or social changes. Social changes are happening. 
economics are a part of life and the political landscape will continue to evolve one way or another. But let's have grown up discussions about it. Well, you know what? We're going to leave it at that. So I, uh, obviously, the first thing people should do is get why leaders fail and the seven prescriptions for success. But what's the best way for people to get a hold of you, Mary? And we'll have all this in the show notes. But how do people reach out and learn more about what you're doing and how you help? My website is ProductiveLeaders.com. And if people go to ProductiveLeaders.com backslash vault, there's all of the five-minute templates that I use in my coaching program, in many of my speaking programs. And it's five minutes on one piece of paper on how you can address problems that all leaders have today, such as employee engagement, teamwork, leadership, focus, time management, just all kinds of helpful tools. And I want to make sure that your audience gets amazing results. That's awesome. So ProductiveLeaders.com slash vault, like a safe or a vault in a bank. And we will have that all in the show notes. So um, people don't have to be worried about jotting it down while they're driving. They can always come back and take a look. So Mary, thanks for giving us some direction on leadership and dealing with all these changes and for demonstrating what that PhD actually does for you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. Such a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks, Mary. Wow. Mary is on top of it. And as a PhD economist, very few people with her background can make things entertaining and engaging. It was a pleasure having her on the show. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key takeaways I think you can use and apply right away. First, when you end up in a stressful situation... Don't think, well, I'm just going to wait for things to return to normal because you might be in the new normal. And make sure you don't think of yourself and your organization as a victim because if that's the case, you might feel somewhat powerless. Make sure that you're giving people great communication, the right information in the right size and the right format for what they need. Don't give them too much they can't process it or too infrequent information so they can't handle things. And then remember, when it comes to millennials leading others, they're going to need a skill set to help people work together as teams and most importantly, to hold people accountable. Remember, this show gets a direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you think I should cover or a guest I should have on the show, drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. And thanks again for taking the time to post a review or share this with friends. It really makes a big difference. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your client.